Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make him known. The Old Testament lesson for today is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. This can be found on page 309 of your pew Bible. King David remains oblivious to his sins of adultery and murder until confronted by Nathan. Like David, we too have a blind spot and need help recognizing and repenting of our own sin. A reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with the first verse. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite, with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. He wasn't where he should have been. At a time when kings accompanied their troops and their generals to battle, King David decided to stay home, to stay in his palace and luxuriate. One day he was lounging on his couch and perhaps out of boredom, he got up from the couch and gazed out his terrace window down at the people below where he saw a beautiful woman who was bathing. And he desired this woman. He lusted after her. 
and he sent for her. She came, and they were together. A few weeks later, he got word from this woman named Bathsheba that she was pregnant. Now King David had a problem on his hands. He tried in various ways to cover up the problem. You can read all about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's an interesting soap opera narrative. (laughs) None of those means worked, so he went to dramatic lengths to cover up this problem. He said, who's that woman's husband? Well, it's Uriah the Hittite, one of your soldiers. So King David sent Uriah to the front lines of the battle, knowing what would happen there. And it did. Uriah died. So King David committed adultery, stole something that was not his, and he murdered somebody to cover it up. And what's even worse than those terrible acts was that King David seemed blissfully unaware of the destructiveness of his own sin. He just went on living his life as if nothing wrong had happened. Human beings have an amazing capacity to ignore the effects of our own sin. We're quite good at spotting it in other people. We can see clearly a speck of dust in someone else's eye, even while we're blind to the log that is in our own. That's the way Jesus put it in Matthew 7, verse 3. What we're going to see in today's scripture is even when we look into the blind spot of our own sinfulness, well, it's worse than we thought. But there's hope. Let's look at the story together to find out where that hope comes from. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible open, I encourage you to open it once again so we can read these words together. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, before I go any further, I have to point out the heading on the page. If you have your Bible open, you see that it says, Nathan rebukes David. Now, those of you who are laughing, you were here last week, you know what happened. I left this pulpit for one week, and Pastor David thought it would be clever to remind you all that Nathan served King David in the story. Well, King, you made a rookie mistake, buddy. If you had known your scriptures, you'd have known the story that comes this week. Nathan rebukes David. Consider yourself rebuked, young man. Where were we? Oh, oh yeah, I've got to preach here. That was more fun. Nathan rebukes David. All right, so David has committed these terrible sins, but he's blissfully unaware of it. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. What Nathan is about to do is he's about to paint a picture. He's about to tell a parable to David. All he's doing by doing so is moving the same sins that David had just committed. He's moving it out of David's blind spot into a place where he can see it. So he paints him this picture. He shows him this parable. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David can see it clearly now. Whoever would do such a thing, kill someone and take something that's not their own. Whoever would do that deserves God's justice. David can see the speck in someone else's eye. He doesn't yet realize that this is a parable about himself. Isn't it amazing how we can see so clearly when someone else has sinned? At this point in the story, David is incensed at someone else's sin, completely unaware of what Nathan is about to say next. Nathan very cleverly comes in for the killer line, and he says, you are the man. Nathan said to David, you are that man. Now, how will David respond to this? He can't escape it. This blind spot is removed. We learn in the story in verse 13, he says, I have sinned. But I just want to, before we learn more about David's response, I just want to like imagine for a moment if Nathan had come in and taken a different approach. If Nathan hadn't done this clever blind spot shifting approach. If Nathan had simply come in and accused David plainly about what he had done. If Nathan had walked into David's office one day and said, I know what you did. You lusted after Bathsheba. You took her as your own. You stole her from another man that was not your wife. And then you sent that man off to die. You murdered Uriah. Now, what if David had heard that message from Nathan? Here's my guess as to how David would have responded. David's inner lawyer might have spoken up and said, wait a minute, Bathsheba? She put herself out there for me to see her. What was I supposed to do? I'm a man, you know? By the way, there's some Bible commentaries that suggest Bathsheba was to blame for this whole thing. I think that totally gets it wrong. It totally misses the power structure that was happening here. David's on the roof. Read it again, verse, uh, chapter 11. David's on the roof looking down like a creepy peeping Tom. <laughs> and he sends for her. Anyway, the inner lawyer might have said, Bathsheba was naked in front of me. How am I supposed to respond to that? And Uriah, well, I didn't kill Uriah. He died in battle. The Ammonites killed Uriah. In fact, that's exactly what David says in chapter 11, verse 25, when he's reassuring his generals, everything's fine. He says, look, the sword now devours one and now another. You know how the sword is in battle. People die. No big deal. Uriah died a hero fighting for our nation, David might have said. You see how amazingly good we are at covering up the destructiveness of our own sin. So Nathan had to come in very cleverly and paint him this picture and as if it was someone else, and then David could see it clearly. He just moved it out of the blind spots so David could see it, and he says, that man deserves to die. Nathan says, you are that man. Now, how does David respond? 
when he receives the conviction, God's conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit of his own sinfulness. Well, he responds in a way that I think is very instructive for all of us. I'll tell you, sometimes in my own life, I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm not unlike David. Now, I haven't done these egregious sins like he has, but I sin too. And sometimes people come into my life and they move it out of the blind spot for me and I can see it and the Holy Spirit convicts me. Conviction by the Holy Spirit is different than condemnation. When we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we see clearly, we see plainly what we have done. When we receive condemnation, it's like when someone comes to us and says, you fool, you idiot, how could you have done that? And you feel about this big when you feel condemnation. But with conviction, you say, oh my, this is what I've done. Now let's deal with it. That's when you feel conviction of the Holy Spirit. When I feel conviction, I run to a prayer in Scripture. And that prayer is Psalm 51. Turn in your Bible with me to Psalm 51. I want to tell you why I run to this particular prayer in the Scriptures. When I feel convicted by the Holy Spirit of my own sinfulness, I run to Psalm 51. You can put up this image, Patrick. You see what it says here at the very top of Psalm 51? To the choir master, a psalm of David. When did David write this prayer? When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Isn't this cool? We actually get to hear the prayer that somebody prayed from another story in Scripture. I'm just picturing Nathan coming to David, telling him the story about the little lamb and the conviction David felt by the Holy Spirit. I'm picturing David running off to his bedroom quarters with his quill and his inkwell and writing out this heartfelt prayer to God. This is why I go to this prayer. When I feel convicted by the Holy Spirit, have mercy on me, David says to God. He's throwing himself on the arms of God's mercy because there's nowhere else to hide. He feels the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So he's not trying to defend himself anymore. Have mercy on me, O oh God. This is what I pray when I feel convicted. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Make it, Lord, as if it never happened. Could you do that? Blot it out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you ever feel dirty when you realize the sin you've committed? We pray, Lord, wash us, cleanse us from the mud we just got ourselves in. Verse 3, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Nathan moved it out of the blind spot for me. There it is, right there before me, David says. I know it, I see it now. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now this might seem strange at first. David is praying out to God, I've only sinned against you, O God. Now, Uriah's mother might have something to say about that. Bathsheba might have something to say about that. Really, David, you sinned against us. I believe that what David is praying here, he's talking to God, the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of these people. He's saying, Lord, I know you created Bathsheba, beautiful in every way. And I abused, when I abused her, I sinned against you, the one who made her. You created Uriah in your image. 
And when he died, I marred that image. I destroyed the very thing that you created. I've sinned against you, O God. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, he's put his inner lawyer back on the bench. You're justified, O God. If you were to judge me right now, I'm guilty. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. When I pray this line, it's like, I think this is what David is doing too. It's like you look back at your whole life now, and you see all the blind spots removed, and you say, ever since birth I've been getting myself into trouble. It's all laid bare now as you appeal to the mercy of God. Behold, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. No more hiding, God. Here I am. No more blind spots. Putting it all out there. You desire truth and wisdom in those secret places. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. There's more to the... Prayer, but I'm just going to focus now on this concept, purge me with hyssop. Why did David say that? Purge me with hyssop. The hyssop flower, the hyssop branch, I brought an image of it here in the land of Israel, looked something like this. And you can take the flower and make it into an extract and make it into actually like a topical treatment for your skin and it would cleanse your skin. So people knew hyssop as a cleansing agent. Also, then once you'd used the flower and created an extract, the stalks or the branches of the flower would dry up and you could tie them in a little twine or something and put it by the doorpost of your house and use it as a broom. And you could sweep and cleanse your front stoop. So people, when they thought of hyssop, they thought of it as a cleansing agent, as a cleaning agent. David is going to God and he's saying, will you cleanse my heart? I've gotten myself into this muddy, terrible situation. Will you come like hyssop? And cleanse me. Now David would have had no way of seeing one of the other two references to hyssop in the scripture. He would have known about one, but not the other. The other notable reference to scripture David would have known about was when hyssop was used during the 10th plague when the Israelites were about to leave Egypt. Some of you know this. The nine plagues had come with all their destructive force against the Egyptians, and the 10th one came. It was the worst one of all. The angel of death left from heaven and swept down over the land and it killed every firstborn son except for those that God instructed his own people to take a lamb and to kill the lamb and to let the blood fill up into a bowl and then God instructed them to take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood and put it over the doorpost of their house. Why did he give them that instruction? They probably all had a hyssop branch broom on their doorposts. God said, use that broom now, but you're going to experience a different kind of cleansing. Kill the lamb as an atonement for your sins. And put that blood above your doorpost so that when the angel of death comes over, your firstborn son will not die. Because the blood of the lamb cleanses us from our sins. David would have known that story, but he would have had no way of knowing the other notable reference to hyssop in the scriptures. The day Jesus Christ died on the cross, a lot of things happened that day. One of the things that happened is that he was given a sponge full of vinegar. 
Remember this by the Roman soldiers? This very interesting detail is given to us in Matthew's gospel. They held up the sponge on a hyssop branch. So the blood of the lamb is spilling, the blood of the lamb of God, Jesus himself, it's spilling onto the cross as an atonement for all of our sins, all the things we keep in our blind spots. Jesus paid the price for all those things when he died on the cross and that hyssop branch appears again. This is why I love praying Psalm 51 when I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when I realize that I've sinned. Sometimes I go into the prayer chapel and I just open up Psalm 51 and I read through this and I say, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop. Cleanse me with your blood, the blood that you spilled on the cross as an atonement, as a payment for my sins. I don't just need a topical ointment to cleanse my skin from what I've done. I need your blood to pay the price for all my sin. Cleanse me with hyssop, Lord. And I pray Psalm 51. Some of you know that because some of you, when you come to me to confess your sins to the pastor, which anybody can do anytime, just call David or Heather or Gina. I got a line standing out my door. No, just kidding. You can come confess, and this is what I do. Some of you know this because I've done it with you. You come and you confess a sin to me. I say, let's go to the prayer chapel. And we open Psalm 51 and we pray. I say, there's another guy who sinned even worse than what you just confessed. His name was King David. Here's what he prayed. Let's go to the Lord together. Let's appeal to the mercy of God. Let's throw ourselves at his mercy and receive his cleansing. And I remind people of what happened on the cross. There's a practical takeaway that I think the story shows us here. So I, I want us to, to leave this story with a, with a challenge and with a promise. I think the scripture gives us a challenge and a promise here. Here's the challenge. Do you have a Nathan in your life? I don't mean Pastor Nathan. I know y'all got one of those. <laughs> I mean someone who can come to you. Realize this. The people around you can see your sins way better than you can. I spent a week at the family cottage last week in Michigan with all the households blended together, the, my siblings and their spouses and my parents. When you put that many people in a family cottage, you can see everyone's got quirks, right? You get to see, you've been to family reunions, haven't you? You're like, oh, that, my dad has the same quirks that I have. You can see each other's quirks. You can't necessarily see your own. It's the same with sin. Shall I ask your spouse what your sin patterns are? <laughs> they know. So here's the question. Do you have somebody who can come in like Nathan came to David and just can kind of say in a loving way, hey, I think you might have a blind spot here. Anybody here who has a newer model car, you probably have a blind spot monitoring system in your car. You know what this is, right? When you're pulling out onto the highway, on the on-ramp, and there's a Mack truck in your blind spot. You can't see it from your rear-view mirror or your side-view mirror, but there's a little camera on the car that can see the destructive power of the Mack truck coming down upon you, and it goes beep, 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 beep. And you say, thank you, blind spot monitoring system. That's why I paid an extra $1,000 for my car. <laughs> we love the blind spot monitoring system on our car, but sometimes when people come up to us and they go beep, 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 
think you might have a blind spot in your life. What do we usually do? We reject it. No, I don't. An inner lawyer comes up. Invite somebody, perhaps, to be your Nathan, to be your blind spot monitoring system. Give someone that freedom. Give someone that license. And then don't be surprised when they beep, beep. Another challenge might be, you might be feeling a nudge of the Holy Spirit to be someone's Nathan today. I just heard a story this week, a couple days ago. Somebody didn't know I was preaching this, and they said, you know, I was praying with somebody, and I felt this nudging from the Holy Spirit to speak this word into their life, but it wasn't one that they were going to like hearing. Should I say it? And I said, yeah, I think you should. I prayed about it with him, and I felt it too, and he went and confronted the person, and it was really good. It led to a lot of healing. It was a total God story. I can't give you the details of it. So do you have a Nathan in your life? Or maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting you to be someone else's blind spot monitoring system. Do it in a spirit of conviction, not condemnation. There's a tempting, there's a temptation there to condemn. But ask the Holy Spirit to give you his conviction. So that's the challenge I think this scripture gives us today. But there's also a promise here. There's a beautiful promise. And I don't think anybody has said it better than Tim Keller. I have this quote from him that I think is an amazing summation of this story. The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. There's a reason we don't want to look into our blind spots. There's a reason we cover up the destructiveness of our own sin. It's terrible to look at what we've done. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. But more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. You are more accepted and loved by Jesus Christ, the one who died in your place, than you ever dared hope. We are fully known. What did David say? You desire truth in the inward being. Teach me wisdom in the secret heart. We are fully known by God. There's no blind spots with him. Yet we are fully loved by him. And how is that possible? Well, we need to look no further than where that hyssop branch was raised upon the cross. Behold him there. Jesus. Can you see him? What what does the cross tell us? The fact that the Son of God had to die for our sins, it tells us that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe because the seriousness of the consequences of our sin were so severe that God himself had to die to deal with it. Our sins are bad, folks, and they required propitiation. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. But look also at the cross for the most hopeful thing you'll hear all day, I guarantee you. You are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. The Son of God died in your place out of his great love for you. That's how loved you are. And as we go to the communion table today, let us behold that man. Be honest about the seriousness of our sin. And let us marvel in awe when we behold the great love 
that our God has had for us. Amen. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.